0: I decided I wanted to try teaching as a profession. Uh, and so I went straight to my daddy, who was uh-huh. in an edu- ed- education as a, a teacher and a principal. He's got, I went, Daddy, how do <laughs> you know, teach school? How do you teach school? And he, he said, um, I'll never forget. He said, uh, prepare the students with real-life situations, mm-hmm. with some common sense kinds of tactics, like uh, how to write a letter, how to balance a check, so those kinds of things.
1: That was Miss Carolyn Addison, and her father wasn't the only teacher in her life. She is actually a third-generation teacher. Today, we're going to hear about her grandmother who started a school in Mississippi, her own career as a teacher and a guidance counselor, and an experience witnessing an infamous act of racial violence that shaped her life and her pedagogy. Welcome to the Teachers in the Movement podcast. Teachers in the Movement is an oral history project that explores teachers' ideas and pedagogy inside and outside the classroom during the U.S. Civil Rights Movement. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective. To watch the full interviews, go to teachersinthemovement.com. I'm Alexis Johnson, and I'm a doctoral student here at UVA School of Education and Human Development, where I serve as an Associate Director of the Teachers in the Movement Project.
2: And I'm Selena Adams, and I'm a research assistant working on the Teachers in the Movement Project.
0: I'm Carolyn Beck Addison. Mm-hmm. I grew up, um, for the most part, in Jackson, Mississippi. And uh, we moved to a little town called Yazoo City, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. That was, I was in sixth grade. Now, um, I'm an only child. And mm-hmm. uh, for the most part, I hung around my parents all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, my father was in education. And I chose teaching uh, because really it's in my DNA. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm a third-generation teacher. My grandmother, Estella Beck, my father's mother mm-hmm. had a school oh my called goodness. the Beck School in Carroll County in rural Mississippi. I have her degree actually at my house right now. Oh she graduated goodness. from, uh, had a four-year degree from uh, Mississippi Valley state college but she she did have a degree but she taught all of the children in the community mm-hmm. from grades one through 12 everybody i said all of that alexis to say this i was in line to teach so yes. i really genuinely do like um uh, sharing and imparting uh, information i really do
1: So if you're familiar with the history of African-American education, you'll learn that during enslavement and during the Jim Crow period, African-Americans started their own schools. These schools were, they were built, they were resourced and funded by the Black community. And this was the first time that I'd spoken with someone who said they had a family member or knew of someone who actually started a school. And based on what you know, what might Mrs. Beck's school have been like? When I think about Mrs. Beck's school, what I think about are Rosenwald schools, which were schools founded in the South by the president or CEO of Sears Roebuck and Company, Julius Rosenwald. And he actually formed a partnership with Booker T. Washington. And these Rosenwald schools popped up all over the South. They were typically one school building maybe had a couple of rooms in them. A lot of people that are familiar with Rosenwald schools have this misconception that they were completely funded by Julius Rosenwald, but really he provided almost what we think about as seed funding. And it was really, again, the African-American community that had to actually build the schools and resource and fund them. And it's really remarkable because these were, very, very impoverished communities, but they thought education was so important that they would take their last dollar to make sure their children have a school to attend. When I think about Ms. Beck's school, that is what comes in mind. I have no idea if that's what it looked like, obviously, but I think about during that time period, and I would definitely say they probably looked like a Rosenwald school.
2: So, we've heard a little bit about Miss Addison's upbringing, and we will explore her time studying at Jackson State a little later. But first, we want to get to know her as an educator. She attended Jackson State, a historically black university in Mississippi, and when she graduated, she spent a couple more years in Mississippi. But then her aunt was unfortunately diagnosed with cancer, and she decided to move up to South Carolina and start a career as a teacher.
0: My mother's uh, sister got sick. Um- mm-hmm with cancer. That was sad. She mm-hmm. lived in Chirot, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. That, that's where I am now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd never left my parents. Remember, I'm an only child. Mm-hmm. But the first time in my life I left home, I secured a position at Chirot High School in 1972 okay. as an English teacher. Okay. And now that was right after the school had integrated here. Mm-hmm. And uh, during the seven years that I was there, Uh, At Sherrill High School, I mainly taught English classes. And I was also given the opportunity to to teach Black history. So I submitted my little proposal, and the district allowed me to to do this. I was surprised. My classes were full, they were mixed, and they were rewarding. We used an anthology called um, Black Voices as our our resource. And uh, so we digested the voices of authors such as uh, Langston Hughes, Mm -hmm. Claude McKay um margaret walker alexander Mm -hmm. but uh malcolm talked about like i said breakfast every county cullen so many so many others a good bit of that curriculum dealt with injustices of the african americans Mm. and uh, so i used my same instruction method you know walking around all that stuff went to the library for research and they even had a a chance to uh, give some oral reports on their Mm. finances they did stuff like um so Donna Truth and the out of uh, B. Wells mm-hmm. and the Ruby and Bridges and all of that. And the other thing is tell what they learned from. Right? Mm-hmm. That was a big thing. I want them to tell, you know, that, what did you get out of this? What did you get out of this? To be honest, I learned just as much as the students did. And um, so the feedback was pretty good. And then uh, even to this day, when I come across some of my former students, you know, they'll say, wait, I remember your, your Black history class. But I kept it rigorous. But I, I thought I kept it interesting. Also, now in the regular English classes as well, when it came time for research book reports, like I provided a lot of black authors uh, every day during you know Black History Month started in nineteen seventy six. and every day during our uh, Black History Month, I, I would read just uh, one one paragraph mm-hmm. of one famous Black American. You know, Uh, But the students learned that Blacks are known, not not just for about the peanut butter and all of that. They learned some other stuff, too. They're known for or invented a whole lot of stuff, like helping with the uh, phone's design, uh, closed-circuit TV, uh, pacemakers, traffic lights, and so, so many others.
1: It's so fascinating to me how basically what Ms. Addison was talking about is what education scholars and researchers now call culturally relevant curriculum. It became popular like in the the 90s and the 2000s, but a lot of times Black teachers especially were doing this type of work for centuries now. This is just something that was almost second nature to them, and this continues even in desegregated schools. So it's really important to remember as well that Ms. Addison started teaching in Sherald just after the schools were desegregated. And this is crazy because it was actually in the early 1970s before schools were fully desegregated here. So this is not that long ago. And so in the next section, Ms. Addison discusses some of the challenges she encountered as an African-American teacher in a newly desegregated school.
0: Um, there were challenges now. My first weeks were very trying, to say the least. This was a time where they just got integrated. So mm-hmm. I remember going into my class, mm-hmm. my first class, mm-hmm. and I heard overheard one girl, tell her classmate, she said, um, we're going to have to stick together. And I really didn't address that comment. Mm-hmm. Gave out the books, started teaching, and, and walking around the rain. Don't say mm-hmm. it wasn't all pictures and screens. Mm-hmm. There were some challenges. Cause mm-hmm. One of them even said, well, my mama said that Dr. King was a communist. You know, this was one of those moments I had to set up my, my office in the hallway, so I had to go talk to her. I'm like, what's going on here? And uh, lo and behold, it worked, though, because at the end of the, the year, that same girl and some of her cronies, uh-huh uh did well they did well mm-hmm. and but in a subtle way you know what I was teaching tolerance so the word yeah. got around and people were really really happy to be in my class in my English class they trusted me
1: this is so interesting because you know African-American teachers had to endure being in these newly desegregated schools but they were such wonderful teachers that they were able to ease and, uh, you know, allay a lot of white students' fears. But you also have to think about the burden that was on them having to navigate racial politics in in these newly desegregated schools. Yeah. That's something that kind of stood out to me.
2: Um, just the fact that she said like in my first weeks. And so she's transitioning to this new space, but then she also has to encounter and deal with these racist incidents, the pressure tends to be put on Black people to navigate okay. that and to make it better in some capacity. I, I do think about the emotional burden and how hard that must have been to process mm-hmm. so early on, but also continuously doing that in different instances. Mm-hmm. So after teaching at Sheraw High School for seven years, Ms. Addison went back to Mississippi to earn a graduate degree in school counseling. Eventually, though, she wound up back in South Carolina, where she took her first job as a high school guidance counselor in Pagelin, South Carolina. Like Sherrod, Pagelin is located in Chesterfield County.
0: I knew every one of those students. We had about six, 700 people at that school. I made it my business to know each one of the students. Mm-hmm. I didn't care if their dad owned such and such mm-hmm. or they didn't have a, a house. Because mm-hmm. I've had students who were homeless. Mm-hmm. But I took it just as much time with them as I did anybody else. But uh, I was able to help so many students go to, to college. I would put them in my car on weekends and take them to the ball games or take them on a mm-hmm. tour of college. It doesn't—it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, it was all my damn. Mm-hmm. But I—I I, I did that so often, so 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 much. I took the time to have actual uh, counseling sessions with mm-hmm. students. I was in there crying with one of the big old football players, you know that kind of thing. I just genuinely wanted to help, I, and it wasn't for any fame or fortune or what. I just wanted to help. Okay, so, so I all go. There's a school called uh, Claxton University mm-hmm. down in Orangeburg. Yes, and a student I taught at Sherrod High. The last time I was here was a senior, mm-hmm. and um, she wanted to go to college. I went on blind faith. I took the child to Claxton. Mm-hmm. and she and I went there. Long story short, the girl got into classroom, got accepted on, on my word, mm-hmm. and then got a scholarship because she was a track star. Got a scholarship, but we did not know she was going to get accepted, so guess what? She didn't have any clothes, nothing. She had nothing. <laughs> I had to drive way back to Sherrod, tell her mama, got her clothes together, drove her way back down. To Orangeburg, that's where Claflin mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. And got situated. She got a room of salmon and everything. And I drove way back home. Got home at three that morning, and went to work. Went to work. I was genuinely into my students. I, I, and you keep keep in mind, I said I was for all of the students. And, mm-hmm. and and you should should have seen me on the on every graduation day down on the field. And they had their little uh, caps and gowns on. I'd be out there hey, what are you going to do? Are you going to do this? You know, I'm I'm everybody, especially the ones who were indecisive. Mm -hmm. You know, they they didn't know what they were going to do. But no, I I stayed on them. I gave one girl my trunk, um, footlocker, because she Mm -hmm. didn't have any any kind of thing. But I took her down to Voorhees. and got her in. And the other thing I said, look, don't you just go down here and party. You go to college, you need to finish. Right. Yeah. You need to finish. (laughs) And and a lot of the if I don't see the student, I see their parents, mm-hmm. and they and some of them I agree, it's like I forgot about all that. said, you really helped my child. You really helped my child.
2: Okay, so we've talked to multiple teachers who have become principals or administrators. What does it mean for a young student to have a black principal or guidance counselor?
1: So, for one, I think it means having someone that can advocate for you like if a student is under threat of suspension or expulsion, you know, that Black guidance counselor or administrator could be the reason that they don't get suspended or expelled from school. And I think that's really important because as we all know, a suspension or an expulsion basically feeds into the school to prison pipeline, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you could be literally altering someone's life trajectory by having that representation there. I think about a Black counselor specifically can be the reason a Black student attends college. A a lot of times, Black students, if they're encouraged to go to college, they're tracked into two-year institutions, which, of course, there's nothing wrong with two-year institutions, but they can probably apply to and be accepted into a four-year institution And so a lot of times um, an an African-American counselor is just there to to give them options and not just say, well, you're only qualified or you're only ready for a two-year institution when you could be ready for a four-year institution. And I think just having a role model there, literally the importance of representation, right? I mean, I know for me, when I was in school, I think I didn't have a Black teacher until I was in high school. And I think I only had like three. So that was something that I always like desired to have. But I didn't. I think I had two black principals. And that was I mean, that was amazing to me just to see um, African-Americans in those Mm -hmm. in those positions, you know. So I, I think it absolutely means a lot on different levels.
2: I was also thinking about uh, similar to what you were sharing with even attending college and whatnot, Mm -hmm. of just how often um, black students are not in honors classes because of Mm -hmm. the way that the education system fails them. Mm -hmm. Um, So even having black guidance counselors to not just encourage them to enroll in those classes, but also give them the tools they need to succeed. I remember in so many of my classes that (laughs) there would only be maybe one or two people that weren't actually white. Um, And it wasn't even necessarily that they were black. It was just that like, they just were not white. Um, Mm -hmm. There were very few of them. And it was just a really interesting distinction that I kept seeing in in so many of my classes, even though I had a lot of friends that were incredibly intelligent. And so it was just this weird disconnect. So being able to have an adult figure that really guides them and sets them up to be able to attend college and to be prepared um, to succeed in college as well.
1: Absolutely, I know. I had a guidance counselor and I just didn't even go to her because I wasn't getting support. I just went to the black guidance counselor where I got what I needed. I, I definitely agree with you. The guidance counselors can really help. They play a, a strategic role, literally, in in trying to um, end tracking in schools, which is, you know, that's so needed. Right. Okay, so it is
2: clear that Miss Addison was an activist in the classroom, but she was also active during her time in college at Jackson State University, a historically Black university in Mississippi. Let's hear Miss Addison tell us about life inside and outside of the classroom at Jackson State, including her firsthand experience with an infamous incident of racial violence.
1: And just as a word of warning, this next segment will include a story of law enforcement brutality. Thinking about your um, transition to college, so you attended Jackson State as an undergrad, correct?
0: I did, okay. and some of it was good, and a good bit <laughs> of it was not so good. I was the first trumpet female player at Jackson State University, the okay. sonic boom of the south. I just decided, it's like, I know how to play this trumpet, so let me go ahead and join the band. Right. <laughs> wow, that, that's yeah. amazing. What was your major um, at Jackson? Kind of funny. Um, on a whim, one of my friends who who lived in Memphis and he said, Carolyn, you speak so well. Why don't you major in English? Mm-hmm. And it clicked. It's like, okay, I'll major in English. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, <laughs> sometimes I listen to my friends. Uh, when, when I was a student there, mm-hmm. uh, I do remember marching peacefully with a group of students like mm-hmm. my sophomore year. That mm-hmm. was in April of nineteen sixty eight. That was right. to honor the life and legacy of Dr. King. Right. And uh but I wanted to say something that that's personal to me. Mm-hmm. And because uh, uh about major incidents that, mm-hmm. that impacted my 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 life. Yes. Uh, they have to do with activism, yeah. Uh wow. you know, you've read the Tale of Two Cities that uh, Charles Dickens yes. the, the, mm-hmm. and I had talked that before, mm-hmm. and if you remember, but it, at the beginning of it, it said it was the best of times, and then it and it said it was the worst of mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm. So I want to tell you now about the Tale of Two Colleges. Mm. Trying to make a parallel yes. thing here. First one is Kent State University mm-hmm. in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You may have heard about the students that happened here mm-hmm. uh, back in May, uh, May 4th, as a matter of fact, in 1970. Apparently, there was some kind of anti-war. This during the Vietnam era. Mm-hmm. Was some kind of rally there. where one thing led to another, and, and as a result, four people were killed and mm-hmm. nine were wounded. The mm-hmm. uh, government sent the National Guard troops in and all that good stuff, but there was so much media coverage of, about this incident. Yes. Mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. That was Kent State. Mm-hmm. Exactly 10 days later, mm-hmm. about 900 and something miles away, south of Kent State University is Jackson State University, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where I went. Mm-hmm. The students had heard that Charles Evers, you remember, uh, he was the mayor of Fayette, Mississippi, yes. and he was the brother of Medgar Evers.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: they had heard that Charles Evers and his wife had been killed. This was not true. But anyway, the students were in an uproar. Okay. They had heard this. So just like a camp state, one thing led to another, and, and somebody set fire to a dump truck off campus, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure who's a, a student or not, but somebody set uh, fire to a dump truck off campus, mm-hmm. and the authorities were told that those uh, students were involved, mm-hmm. and they came, and they called it vandalism, just, to, just about to use the force, mm-hmm. and here's what, there's this guy named Alan C. Thompson, I will never forget this. He was the mayor of Jackson. Mm-hmm. He sent out the Jackson Police Department. He sent out the Mississippi Highway Patrol. Mm-hmm. And while I'm with the students at my dorm, they were either studying for finals because this was May, mm-hmm. or relaxing in the lobby. So these police people came, now listen to this, for 28 seconds. Mm-hmm. They sprayed a barrage of ammo, ammunition, totaling 460 rounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they sprayed it at our dorm Mm. and into the crowd. Yes, we were on—we we we, we, we were on the sixth floor and scared to death. Alexander Hall on Mitch Street. Mm. Sharon is looking at it. Wow, girl, I was scared to death. I mean, Mm. we all were, but Mm. we couldn't leave that night Mm -hmm. because it happened late at night. Mm -hmm. Uh, We couldn't leave that, so the next morning we got out of there. As a result. Mm. two people were killed. Mm. James Kibbs, he was a pre-law student, and then um, Philip Green, mm. who's a senior at, at Jim Hill High School, who was walking home from his job. Mm. Mm-mm. Walking home from his senior in high school. And some of that disfiguration is still visible at the, um, at the dorm. I've been back before, uh, yeah. But as, you can imagine, Alexis, nobody was ever charged with this heinous crime. Right. There were no apologies to either family. Mm. But this happened on the the 14th of May. And so we immediately had to take the uh, campus the next day. Mm -hmm. Meaning we would not have our graduation. I was supposed to graduate in May of 1970. Wow. That was 50 years ago. So we didn't have our graduation. Oh, my gosh. This year... We were supposed to have our former golden graduation this year because it's been 50 years. Mm-hmm. And as you can see, that didn't happen either because of COVID-19. So twice we didn't get a graduation. You know, that's the tale of two campuses, two campuses.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for telling me that story. That, that's why I love doing these, these interviews because it's one thing uh-huh. when you read about stuff like I've read about what happened at Jackson State, but just to hear that you were there and involved and can just give that, you know, that first-hand knowledge as a man is something. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Fifty
0: yeah. years ago, it was May, May 14th, mm-hmm. 1970. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. mm mm-hmm. <laughs> I couldn't
1: believe that she was there when that Mm -hmm. happened. Like, I've known this woman forever, and I never had any idea, you know, that she witnessed such a historic event. Well, I read about what happened at Jackson State, what happened at Kent State, but, like, I never imagined that I would personally know someone Mm -hmm. who actually witnessed this event. And I think if you're a Black person, you've either witnessed law enforcement violence, or you're going to experience it yourself. It's almost like a rite of passage, which is very disturbing to say. I mean. Yeah. mm -hmm. I also even just appreciated the way she described this incident,
2: and how she mentioned that they were studying for their final exam. Mm -hmm. It was all these details that made it really personal, like all these things that are common experiences. And that really, I think, made it more real and more personal than I think it has been in the past for me. Oh, absolutely. Something that kind of stood out to me, um, there was this part where she said that the officers encountered vandalism and used that to justify their force.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And it just was, again, this comparison between like the lives of Black people and the value of property. Mm-hmm. Which really uh-huh. paralleled so much of what has come up with Breonna Taylor. People just were not concerned about her actual life. But like this drywall was damaged right. in the other person's apartment. It really is just not proportional. That just made this more and more horrific and also made uh-huh. it really hard to even have hope now seeing the parallels from then to now.
1: Yeah, I love your point about the vandalism because every time these things happen and people, to me, they rightfully riot and the attention gets placed on damaged property. But what about the incident that happened? What about, you know, someone being murdered by mm-hmm. law enforcement for no good reason? Like your anger is taken out on property rather than, you know, this mm-hmm. heinous murder that that just happened. So, yeah, definitely see the same parallels. And it's not just media, you know, this is something that is everywhere, because if you think about what Black Lives Matter means, that that statement at its core is just premised on the fact that Black life is not as worthy or as valued as our white lives. So that goes back to what Ms. Addison was saying, and what many people have noted, which is the fact of the matter is that Kent State received more attention than what happened at Jackson State, because Black lives don't matter to a lot of people. They're not as valued mm-hmm. or, or seen as worthy. So why give, you know, Jackson State more attention when these were Black victims and not like at Kent State, right, where there were white victims? So, Miss Addison, do you have any, any more stories um, just around civil rights activism or your time at even as a teacher, any any of those you'd like to share? Well,
0: I could tell you some stuff that I would want um, some present-day teachers, yes, maybe please. students to know yes. about the movement. Um, I, w- I want the present-day teachers and students to know that we African-Americans have had a hard time attaining mm-hmm. respect and equality mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. since day one. And that's been over 400 years ago, you know, when they, they shipped until to American soil without their permission. Mm-hmm. But my quest, Alexis, mm-hmm. my quest was to dispel some of those myths about us as a race. Yes. <clears throat> mm-hmm. You know, stuff like we smell. mm mm-hmm. We don't know anything. hmm No, no, no. We are intelligent. hmm You know, we we can do just as much as anybody else can do. Mm-hmm. We, we put forth the effort. Yes. Yeah. And I kept on teaching. Just Mm -hmm. on walking around, Mm -hmm. even with three inch (laughs) heels, being there for all of the students, all of them interjecting my sad humor. I was teaching the subject matter, but you know what? Mm -hmm. I was also teaching tolerance. They learned about nouns and pronouns, and they learned about Beowulf and Canterbury Mm -hmm. Tales, and you know, all of that. But my daddy said, You know, life lessons, they saw how sincere I was, Mm -hmm. and um. They saw me lead by example. Now, I listened to my students, but I demanded their respect. Mm -hmm. And um, I respected them as Mm -hmm. well. And, you know, guess what? They learned more than one lesson. Mm -hmm. And and, and I noticed because of the positive feedback that I've gotten over the years. Mm -hmm. Now I've had people, you know, we've got ministers. I have attorneys. I have Mm -hmm. school personnel, of course. I've got a journalist. Mm -hmm. And um, people on the city council. Mm -hmm. the the young lady on the city council here in Sheratha. Said I was the reason she went to, to 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 college, but we have a recorded artist you have college professors you have you know all, all, all politicians all kinds of people, but they listened they listened mm-hmm. you know, I'm so happy that they listened mm-hmm. and that's what I want Christmas day teachers and students mm-hmm. to know about my teachers mm-hmm. they they learned more than one of
1: so I would known Miss Addison forever because she serves as a deacon in the church that I grew up in. So I've just basically known her that way. And mm-hmm. also uh, she knew my mom because she was my mom's high school teacher. Mm-hmm. So um, she's always been somebody that I've looked up to and respected mm-hmm. tremendously. So I knew that doing Teachers in the Movement interviews, I was like, I have got to interview her. You know, she's gonna be fantastic for me to interview. And I'm so glad I did because like I said, I have known her forever and I really had no idea like about the remarkable things she's done and the life she's led and like just the people that she's really touched. It's no surprise, but you know, just to hear her story was just amazing.
0: I want to say that I had the privilege of teaching your mom yes. during this time frame at Shirah High School, yes. Shirah, South Carolina. She was in one of my English classes. Uh-huh. She was extremely smart. And you know your brilliance has emanated oh. from her.
1: This is amazing, Ms. Addison. Just, just thank you for these stories. This is amazing.
0: Well, thank you for asking. I, that's just, I've you know, I've had this story, to, to, this stuff to tell. Oh, and this has been pent up. I just, have, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. I don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the emotional, the, the thing about my school and what my dad went through, all of that stuff mm-hmm. had, has had an impact on on my life.
2: I was really struck in this interview by how many times Miss Addison thanks you for asking her a question. Why is it important for us young people to take some time to talk to the elders in our life? Do you have any advice for getting those conversations started?
1: Yeah, so for me, her story just illuminates that you can be talking to someone who's lived history, who is a history maker themselves, and you can be completely unaware of it, have no idea until you strike up a conversation. And so to me, that puts a responsibility on us as young people to go to our elders and get their stories while we're still fortunate enough to have them because that not when they pass away or make their transition, you know, that knowledge is is gone unless, you know, it is preserved somewhere. And so in terms of starting these conversations, it's so interesting because for for African-Americans and people of color in general, I think storytelling in the oral tradition is just a cultural practice, right? So these type of conversations happen all the time with elders Mm -hmm. that's just something that we do Um, but if there's someone who wants to be more intentional about starting these conversations one of the questions that we ask when we when we first do these Tim interviews is tell me what life was like growing up in your hometown and that puts the interviewee at ease. And once they start talking about growing up, you know, they are—they will tell you their entire life story. So that's more of a way to um, be intentional about starting these conversations. Thank you
0: for this initiative that mm-hmm. you're involved with, because mm-hmm. we want our, our our young people to to excel. We don't want them to feel threatened. And this movement has to continue. And Mm -hmm. and it's going to take all of us Mm -hmm. to our part to to bridge the gap and and to show that we are indeed stronger
1: together. I'm Alexis Johnson, and I'm joined today by Selena Adams. This has been Teachers in the Movement. For more information and to view the videotape interviews, visit TeachersInTheMovement.com. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective and is produced by Mary Garner McGee. Thanks for listening.